All for one family on stage. Their first gig, The Cars. It didn't go in that we could actually be meeting our producer or that this could be a major record year for us. If you feel the emotion in every song, you give across the emotion of the song. You have been a wonderful audience and we will remember this. We will be back. When you're put in a situation where you have to perform, where you have to deliver, no matter what, something happens. That's why we're doing it. We're doing it because we love it. Hi, this is Ryan Freeland. I was a second engineer for Bob Clearmountain on the Coors Forgiven Not Forgotten, and you are listening to Coors Cast. Hi, welcome to episode two. It's been incredible to receive such feedback from the first episode from all four corners of the world, hundreds of fans who have listened to episode one now um, over these last weeks. Such an outpouring of appreciation that I can only be humbled by and give you my thanks for. It's incredible and a joy to read how listening about this album and this band we love is affecting you. Thank you so much. It's been amazing to experience the diverse locations that have been listening to episode one be united in appreciation for the band that many of us have loved for nearly three decades of our life. Um, specific countries come to mind that I know have listened, like the United States, uh, Spain, Australia, France, Germany, Brazil, the Philippines, Chile, Egypt, Mexico, Indonesia, Hong Kong, Singapore, Czech Republic. I could go on. I could really go on for ages listing all the countries. But I do have to give a special mention to our one listener from Dundalk. And when I saw that a listener had been listening from that hometown, yeah, that, that made my day. That made my day. Thank you, listener in Dundalk, whoever you may be. A surprising outcome from producing episode one was being reached out to by people that I'd lost contact with over a decade ago. It was amazing to realise that the very things that drew us together in the first place, those being adoration for this music, this band, and specifically this album, were the very things that were bringing us back together to again continue that discussion as if we'd never stopped nearly a decade later. If you haven't already listened to episode one, I'd urge you to go back and listen. In this episode, we talk to five-time Grammy winner Ryan Freeland. We discuss his background, his journey into music as a career, and specifically his work on Forgiven Not Forgotten. Enjoy. Thank you for taking your time today. It's really really lovely of you to to spend some time talking about something that's now 25 years old. Great to have you on the show. I guess the first thing I'd like to ask is your background. How did you how did you come into working in the music industry um, and then specifically into mixing and then finally on to how did you come in to working on this album? I know that's quite a big story um, but just a bit of background about you prior to to where you came into this album. Right. Well, I was, uh, uh, my mom started me on piano at six years old and uh, I just kind of stuck with it. It was all classical playing. And I, I, once I got to the point where I could use uh, playing piano and music to, um, it's kind of weird to say as a companion, but as a, that was like my, it became kind of my best friend in a way. Like, Anytime I was going through anything, I would sit at the piano and I would play and or I and uh, I got my first four track recording machine by mowing lawns and my dad helped me. I painted the house and I got a microphone, you know, stuff like that. And uh, so it went from playing piano to wanting to start documenting stuff um, more so than just using um, 
had an old reel-to-reel tape machine and I used to bounce between machines and all that when I was a kid. And so it just evolved and, and, and somehow uh, engineering was the thing that stuck with me. I was like, you know, you'd look at the albums and I'd, be, I'd see engineer and I'd see studios and I'd see the guy, mm-hmm. pictures of the, the person at the console. And I'd think about the technical side of it. And that would just, even as a very young person, I thought, wow, that looks like a really cool uh, job. Mm-hmm. And I really was excited about it. And then messing with microphones and trying to figure out how to capture sound with microphones and, um, and bouncing. Once you, once you could start uh, easily multi-tracking on those early cassette multi-tracks, uh, my brain exploded. And I thought that was just about <laughs> the coolest thing I'd ever uh, experienced, which is funny now I see my kids uh, doing it on iPads and they don't even seem that impressed by it. <laughs> but at the time, at the time, being able to do a four track recording was, uh, um, was really exciting. So I just had a bug for it and I, and I loved it and I loved particularly sound. And I remember um, listening to albums and the thing I responded the most to about the album more so than the performer or the song was how it sounded coming out of the speakers to me. Wow. And I don't know why, but there was something about like, I, I remember thinking, wow, that's a great song and a great band, but that I don't like the way that record sounds. And so I wouldn't listen to it, even though I, I could, I could know that it was a great song by a great mm-hmm. band. Uh, the, it had to also sound good for me to, uh, to like it. And was that even from a very young age, that kind of awareness that this doesn't sound good enough? Yeah. Well, it, I built my, I built my first studio at 12, wow. 12 years old. I built my first studio in the basement. So I, w- I had been thinking about it for years, be- for at least a year or two before then. Um, and it's weird. Yeah, I don't know where that came from, but that was the thing that I had in me mm-hmm. based off my love of music and sound and the way um, frequencies interacted and the way things came through speakers and the emotion I got from the sound. And so I just pursued it. I, I, I went to a, um, um, a music high school, Interlock and Arts Academy for piano. Cool. And uh, everybody there needed, by the time we got to senior year, everybody there needed audition tapes for their colleges. And I recorded everybody's audition tapes. And, wow. we, you know, and I, I was in bands and we recorded, we, you know, we'd go into the, the, the gym or the theater or whatever, and we'd make records on the, the same exact little cassette four track I had from when I was, from when I was younger. And then I went to college for, I went to Cal State Chico for me. It was a music degree, but a, um, a focus in recording arts. And uh, I did four years there. And then I just got, you know, from graduation from there, I went in um, to, I got a job as a runner at a studio in Memphis. And that studio was owned by Gary Bells, who was friends with Bob Clearmountain. And Bob needed a new assistant, was talking to Gary. And Gary was like, oh, we got this great guy, Ryan from Cal State Chico. You should talk to Chico and get another guy from another person from their program. And I got wind of this and I don't know, uh, it was one of those, when you're really young and obsessed and focused and driven, I just was like, I'm going to call Bob. I'm going to call, I'm going to call and say, I want that job. Cause I was like, I want that job. I want to be in LA. I want to work for Bob Clearmountain. And so I called him and, uh, after did a couple calls and was like, Oh, I didn't get the job. You know, didn't, hadn't heard anything. Oh, I didn't get the job. Um, and the next thing I knew, I got a, I, I called back just to, I was like, they have to 
I need them to tell me I didn't get the job. I need to hear that. I can't just let this like disappear. Mm-hmm. And I called and it was kind of like, hey, what, what are you showing up? We need, you know, we're starting Springsteen uh, next week. We need you down here by Wednesday or something. And that was it. And I, I told Gary I had to leave. I had to take the, the, this new opportunity. And I packed my car and I, I drove down there. Uh, and it was really bizarre thinking about it now because like my parents would be like, well, where are you working? I'd be like, I don't know. Like, where, where, how much is he going to pay? It's like, I don't know. Like, well, where are you going to listen? Like, I don't know. I didn't know any of that stuff. All I knew was wow. Bob Clearmountain uh, said yes to me being his assistant. And I'm going to go down there and, and do that. And so that's basically what I did. I drove down, found a place to live and, and got, went there my first day. And just, we, we spent three years uh, working together. And one of the things that came through during that time was uh, the Coors album, wow. which, um, was a was a highlight of the of the of that time. There were tons of great records, but that was definitely one of the one of the highlights. And what age did you start working for Bob as the assistant? God, I would have been. Uh, it was six months after college, so I would have been twenty three or twenty four. Wow. Yeah. It's I, I I've been hearing this story a lot with interviewing people that it's you know what what they what they've gone on to do greatness with. And obviously yourself now, five times Grand, Grammy Award winning. Um, oh, it, it's something that started at a very early age and there was never any other question. It was like, that's what I'm doing. And it, it's yeah. very, not linear, I guess, but it, it's very focused, very, there was no question. I'm, d- I'm definitely going to be doing that. That's, that's what I'm doing. And the example you've given of just sort of like, oh, right, that's Bob needs an assistant. I'm going to go for that. All right, I'm definitely been hired by Bob. Right, everything else is dropped. This is the focus. This is the, and I think that's something that's incredibly lost this day and age, in that freedom to just still pursue what you want. Yeah, and just single-mindedly just do it, even from a very young age. Well, can't well. The other thing, kind of along those lines, that I thought was interesting is, after I was there and working, and and the Bob Studio was beautiful, and I was like, oh, this is a beautiful studio. But we were doing these projects, and people were driving up. And they had all these such fancy cars. And I, and I was like, all these people seem like they have a lot of money. And that was the first time after having gone all through high school and all through college and all the work I'd done that I was like, wow, you can make, you can make money doing this job. <laughs> it never occurred. I had never thought of anything about money with the job ever. Never <laughs> occurred to me that it was a way that you could, you could actually make a really good living well, at, the, at that time. It's That's not the same yeah. now, but, but, uh, and I always thought that was funny. I was like, it's, I was like, I, you've, you've worked this hard to get here, but you never actually like thought how much that if you could actually make a living doing it or not. So you're doing a couple of records. How many records do you say, would you say you worked with, with Bob before the cause have come in for Forgive Not Forgotten? Oh man, I, I don't actually remember. It seems like it was kind of in the middle of the run mm. or kind of early to middle. I mean, we did Springsteen. We did like Madonna stuff. We did uh, Bon Jovi. We did some Rolling Stones. Did like an Elvis tribute record. That was an early one. And then, yes. And then the cores were kind of, uh, kind of early in the thing. Um, yeah. So there was... Uh, and I, I, I loved the whole story when they came in, um, just about how, like, because like, they had such a passion for it. And it's similar to what you're talking about. They had like a real 
feeling about themselves, not so much like in a um, ego way, but in just a like, we, we, this is what we do. Mm. Like, let's not, you know, let's not be shy about it. <laughs> like, let's go out there and like, and like, and see what, see what happens by, by being proactive. And uh, I really like that part of their story um, and how they were able to come, you know, like otherwise they would have, they would have not, um, they wouldn't have gotten the international uh, mm. uh, age that they've gotten as opposed to just be staying really great. Obviously they'd still be really great, but yeah, being able to be, being able to will themselves onto the international stage was a very inspiring story for me as a, as a 20 year old, uh, person and Jim and then they were so sweet to me too which um was obviously at the age I was with with uh with that group was really fun fun for me because they were they were I don't think they were they were about my age I think or Or younger yeah I think Jim was around younger uh, Jim was around your age and Sharon and the others were younger they're literally just out of school this was their first first foray into the world and then suddenly from mixing in a back bedroom, a corner away from their family home, to suddenly now being co-producer credit with David Foster on on a, an album is just yeah. huge jump, massive huge jump. So yeah, and good for David to allow Jim to maintain. You know, like it was that they had a they from what I saw, they seemed like they had a nice uh, balancing thing where they both really respected each other and they weren't. It didn't feel competitive or sometimes you get into things like that and it's like it's about it's some it's about it being somebody's idea more so whether it's a good idea or a bad idea or whether it could be adjusted and those two David and Jim seem to always um have a nice balance between when when they agreed and when they disagreed and what the solution to the to the disagreement was basically One, two, one. Brian, one. Strings down a little bit. A little bit more, tiny bit more. Yeah. It's okay. remember any specific examples of that where there might have been disagreements or changes for tracks or anything like that nothing nothing specific i just remember generally like because it was um it was such a, a love child for jim it was like he had obviously like you know his blood sweat and tears were in it but he also like acknowledged that he 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 had allowed all these other people in to to be able to have some sort of like thumbprint on on it and i and um, he didn't, he seemed, uh, I can't think of a good, but he, he, was, he was very, very open to all possibilities. He was firm when he, like, I remember him being firm when he really felt like something wasn't right, but he didn't get uh, ego-y about it, which 
I guess kind of makes sense at that stage in your yeah. career. But I mean, David didn't seem egoy about it either. And, 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 and that, uh, I always liked that dynamic in the studio. As soon as people have egos and, and stuff, it gets really uh, much harder to, to make great art, I think. Mm, mm, all around. But yeah, I don't have anything, I don't have a, a specific example, but I do remember just enjoying the, the, uh, the mood. The mood on those sessions was always very positive and uh, very artistic and very um, uh, committed to making something great, which mm -hmm. I like. Um, coming back to the, let's say the mixing and the sessions themselves, was it a case that they had, had recorded a full album and then that's where you and Bob came in? Basically, yeah. But yeah, they, the, they, the recording was all done. I don't think we recorded any extra bits. But yeah, it was all done and then we, we mixed it and then it was like, especially that album, the um, mixture of some of the traditional songs with the more of the pop stuff, like trying to figure out uh, how it made sense to kind of inter interweave all those things um, was kind of interesting and, and a bit tricky. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, I was, that all we were doing was mixing. So, but they were all there, which was great. And um, wow. yeah, and, and yeah, we just, Bob worked away and I helped him. This <laughs> great. Why not? Why not? <laughs> <My role. laughs> this is good. Um, so yeah, so in, in, to your memory, they've got a full album and they're like, right, we need to get this mixed so we can hear what the sound's like and, and, and finish it from there. Was it a case that, um, that you produced several mixes of a certain song and then they chose from them? Or was it a very active in the studio, right, this is what it's sounding like on this mix, okay let's go back scrap that we're doing another one or is it tweaking as it went on it's a, it's always a little, little bit of all of those things usually like it back in that time it was all um well bob still mixes this way where it's all uh, it's all analog for the most part so the so you do your best to get it done like in that day or if it takes two mm -hmm. days or whatever so you spend a lot of time like pushing and tweaking and, and trying to get it done um, but then if like a week later, you got to bring it, that was a big part of what I did was trying to get all, trying to get the mix to sound like it did the previous week or the previous month or whenever mm. you recall. And that used to, there used to be a real art to that, which is now, uh, nobody cares anymore because <laughs> the computers just bring it all back instantly. Mm. Um, but at that time, there was a real art to, to, to taking notes and making sure that the mix could come back as close to what it sounded like, uh, as possible. And then you could continue to tweak it and you do versions and then you people listen to the different versions and, and you talk about what it, what it means. And sometimes um, uh, what I've found definitely is that uh, by the time you get to the end of an album of mixing an album, not that one, because I didn't mix it, but uh, the ones that I have, sometimes you've learned so much that you kind of have to go back and re kind of re finesse the whole wow. thing to kind of fit, to fit in a new, what, it all has to kind of work together. And um, Forgiven Not Forgotten is a tricky one because of how, how different all those little, the songs are all pretty different. And so Bob, I, I don't remember him struggling with it, but I think he did a really good job at, at making all those uh, things make sense together with all those different kind of um, approaches. So. Yeah. Mm. So. Mm. There's an incredible skill in that. And it really lends to the overall listening experience, really does. Um, right. You mentioned the um, traditional pieces, which are weaved, the album obviously starts and ends with traditional pieces, with traditional pieces weaved throughout as well. 
Yeah, well, that part always did strike me as a little, I mean, the whole, I, I, like, I like it, but the whole thing did strike me as a little strange because it was like, instead of, instead of allowing, I mean, it's a classic old, old school thing. They're like, oh, you know, can't go on that long with that. You got to get back to the, you know, it's like the whole, mm -hmm. whole record making me like, okay, get back to the, get back to the hit, you know, yeah. like enough of this, enough of this enough traditional, of this stuff. traditional yeah. stuff. Yeah. You had your minute and a half, like fade it out. Let's get on to the next one. Literally so, that, that is literally yeah. it. That it was, I was like, oh, can't they, you know, the thing's only like three minutes long. Like you couldn't like, yeah. let it go for three minutes and then let that be, especially now. Cause I've worked on, I've worked on some full traditional type Irish music records. Mm. And uh, so it's, I mean, whole albums of that are great. I think that's probably why Jim really wanted to, uh, and plus it's their heritage that, you know, you want to, you know, you don't want to like, um, you want to have part of that is a big part of who they are is mm. art people. So definitely. Yeah, I can see why he really want, wanted that stuff on there, but I'm sure it was uh, not the record company's first choice. My memory is that they went through like a lot of approaches on how to make it make sense. Because like I said, it's not a, it's, it's tricky. <laughs> you know, it's, it's tricky to go from a, like a full on, very, very produced pop uh, tune to something very traditional. It was recorded onto analog. They've got their rough mix together. It's been given to Bob. How does then, how do you, as the assistant, what do you physically then do? Do you have to get those tapes and then put them into a bank so that they're ready to mix for Bob to, to play with or? Yeah, so everything would get transferred. He had a, a Sony, Sony 3348, which is a 48 track digital machine that we transferred everything to that. And then, uh, and then you route it to the console and you, mm -hmm. you get all the stuff plugged in the way he likes it. And then he comes in um, and starts mixing. So every day, usually you'd spend a day on a song and then do, do a day or two of recalls at the end. Uh, so yeah, you do that and you take notes on the mixes and you make copies. I mean, it's kind of funny to talk about it because it's like, it, it, uh, assistant to a mix engineer is not, Quite as interesting as being an assistant when you're in a working studio that's doing tracking and there's bands coming in and microphones and there's a lot more work mix assistant is more um brainy it's not that physical like you're you're like I'm, i spent most of my time watching him and learning and um i used to do this thing where i'd set the i'd kind of set the faders up to begin with before he'd come down to kind of get used to the song and think about it and see what i start thinking about what i might do to it Nice. And then he would come down and then I'd watch what he did with it over the course of four, four, five, six, eight hours or whatever. Wow. And I would just kind of, and, and get used to the hearing, you know, like hearing the nuance, like, Oh, I see he's done this to the drum or, Oh, I see he tried that reverb and then he didn't like it and he took it away and he, now he's trying this reverb and mm -hmm. you really do learn. I mean, that, that's a valuable um, time spent, you know, watching somebody that's at that that uh, proficient at their at their uh, skill, um, be able to spend that much time kind of studying them. Uh, we didn't talk much. He's not much. He wasn't much of a talker, uh, so he wasn't like teaching you anything. But you could learn from watching him. And he was very generous with his uh, allowing me to kind of do what I thought I needed to do the best job that I needed to do. He was always very supportive. I'd be like, oh, I mean, I could have said any i could i would be like oh if you know if only we could move this wall here he probably you know like, he probably would have been like oh let's get a guy in to help move the wall you know, <laughs> he, was very, he was always very like 
uh, interested in making things better, which is another kind of an engineering mm. thing. It doesn't work in all um, parts of life, but that impulse to always try and um, make the best of something is 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 uh, is fun. It's fun to always kind of be striving for the best thing you can get, even if and and to fight really hard for just like just the smallest little increment better is worth is worth fighting for. Mm. Mm. And there's sometimes that lends itself to an OCD obsessive compulsive kind of thing, but there's also something kind of artistic about it where even, even one little hair out of place, you can go like, you know, it's worth, it's worth spending an hour on that one little thing because mm-hmm. then it'll be, it'll be right as opposed to wrong, <laughs> you know, and there is, and, and that I always liked, uh, um, watching Bob work. He was always willing to like, uh, um, go the extra mile to make something, you know, sit right. I never, I'm, I never saw him be like, oh, that's good enough. I'm going, you know, it's, mm-hmm. he, he never, he was always pushing yourself to every little project, every little thing. It was always like, let's get, let's make this the best we can. And the beauty of that is you never have any regrets. Even if you listen to it later and go like, oh, that doesn't sound good. You're like, well, I did the best I could, you know, you never sit there and go like, oh, I probably could have worked harder on it. You never have that you never, you never get to say that because you're like, I worked the, I worked my hardest and I'm still not sure it was that good. And and so then you can kind of look at yourself and be like, I got to get better. Back then it was all real time. So somebody would, um, somebody would give you a list of the songs they wanted and the order they wanted and the version and the mixed version they wanted. And he, uh, there was a bank of, I think four cassette machines, the task, the classic task can set machines and he had to make sure each one was aligned and each one was biased correctly and then you would simultaneously in real time go down this checklist of songs and mixes and and you could make four copies at a time and god forbid they asked for five copies because then you had to do the whole thing yeah yeah. it would have been just as easy to make eight copies but they asked for five (laughs) (laughs) so that was always interesting and then and then there was always that weird thing. People would listen to cassettes and be like, the cassette sounds different from, you know, the mix. And you're like, yeah, cool, because the cassette uh-huh. is a cassette. Literally. It's, it's, <laughs> different, yes. it's a different way to play back music than mm. the CD. But we had just gotten the first CD uh, recorders back then, and they were, they were real time as well. And they would do one copy at a time. And you had to, you had to make sure everything was pristinely clean. You had to air blow everything it was just really because it could get to the end and then have a failure after an hour of burning a disc it fail at the end. and then you have to sit there another hour waiting for it because it's important you know like that's the other thing that um i feel with the amount of music that gets to be recorded and released it doesn't the it becomes a little uh a little more temporary in a way it's like it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like as critical to archive it yeah. Um, where when I got started, I always had that. Well, like this album's a good example where you're like, twenty five years later, somebody might be still be interested in this. Yeah. So I better, I better like make sure I, I, I've got it documented and that it's right, you know, because you never know. Radio edits. Any idea? Would that have been handled by Bob? Yeah. I mean, we did yeah. do radio edits because we would take the. Yeah, we would take the master mix and then we would edit it and then we would deliver those alternates to mastering. So the 
the edits were done because you never, you kind of have to, because you never know, like sometimes um, depending on the edit that people ask for, there's sometimes you have to change the mix a little bit Mm. to get the edit to work. So if somebody asks for a chop that then there's a reverb tail thing that doesn't work, you have to, you have to reprint a mix that doesn't have that reverb tail so that when you edit it, it goes away. Those, Those are all things that you have to do in the mix stage to make sure it all works. Um, and it was much more difficult to do back then. Uh, now it's like editing is like so easy, but um, at the time it was, it, it took a lot, especially when it was sound is before Pro Tools, it was sound designer. And it was really bizarre because it was like, if somebody was like, oh, I want to get, I want to get rid, you know, I want to cut the bridge in half. You'd have to say, okay, well, you'd have to tell the computer like, okay, keep the start of the song up to the middle of the bridge and then keep the end of the bridge to the end of the song, but get rid of everything else. And every time I did it, I was like, why don't I just tell it? I don't want the, this part. Why am I telling it everything I want to keep Literally. as opposed to everything I want to get rid of? That was one of those early computer things like this. This is whoever came up with this was just bizarre. Mad. Yeah. <laughs> You're focused on what you want to get rid of, not what you want to keep. It's like, just switch your mindset. Crazy. Uh, yeah, it's it's a weird, weird machine. It really is the, the music industry and how the, the tools to create what we want have evolved over even the last sort of 20 years has just been phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah, phenomenal. well, that that is, I mean, it's really all different. now. I mean, Pro Tools was just getting started back then. And uh, there were specific guys that would get hired just to be Pro Tools operators. It was an entire like separate job. Um. And then, and then, like us young engineers, because it was the tool, we all we were all good at it. So, I, you know, I never needed a Pro Tools operator. Like, I, yeah, I would do it myself. But I remember how weird, how oddly it warped my musical mind. Like, because um, music was, it was just different. Like, so you go from like recording music on tape and thinking of it kind of linear in a linear fashion, mm. and when people are asking you for markers you're thinking about time like okay well the first course starts at one minute 40 like you're thinking of all these time markers in your head it's all linear and you have to roll back and you maybe you overshoot it and then there's all that stuff and then after a year of just having it all on a computer where you can you can basically manipulate any aspect of it is a very different mindset from from a linear mindset a random access mindset is different and I used to have weird dreams about it. I used to wake up like feeling weird that I could take bass parts and line them up with kick drums and stuff. It was just like, that was just a really weird idea 25 years ago. I think that was the other satisfying thing with that Coors record is how successful it was because it was, I think there were a lot of people that saw it as a a passion project for David Mm -hmm. and not, anything they were ever going to like ever going to make any money back on or any of that stuff they probably you know there was I don't remember feeling a lot of enthusiasm from anybody other than the people that were actually making the thing Mm. Uh, and that is always fun when something that you know that kind of unexpected happens like that so they're you know they're hiring they're kind of like they're you know they're they're doing the work but they're not like let you know they're kind of like doing it in a way that's probably easier and more affordable so that's running a ton of money onto something that ended up being a very successful thing Mm -hmm. and that's kind of always that's like a fun part of the 
of the record making process is because you never know you never know which one's going to hit with an audience and which one's going to not hit with an audience literally yeah yeah, yeah. and ones that hit you you don't always know why they hit i mean you know it's like it's a funny little thing people just get people respond to certain combinations of uh, variables and ways that, that is meaningful to them like i never know why there's stuff i like it was always it was always at any anytime there was a single somebody picked a single i was always like oh <laughs> nobody ever picked my favorite song on the album yeah never never once in all my years of working i was like what's your favorite song it's like well that one is like well no we're never gonna release that as a single <laughs> do you have a standout track on this album well, that, I was thinking of that, saying that Runaway was probably one I liked. Yeah. That was probably my favorite song, which actually did okay. I would run away I would run away with you Cause I, yeah, I fall in Yeah, that's the one I, I like the ones I I forget some of the other but the ones that were the ones that did the the nicest marriage of the like the like this the very um uh pop more straight ahead pop but with combining more of the traditional elements mm. those are the ones that I was like okay that's a cool to me that's what the cores were it wasn't just like let's like it was the ones that are just more straight ahead and have all the more of the traditional pop with the guitars and stuff mm. kind of lose some of the more traditional melody um, and instrumentation are still great, but those, those didn't speak to me as much as like Runaway had, had a nice combination. I thought it was a very, yeah. very well-crafted uh, production and, and, a, and a marriage of, of and, and it, well, it didn't sound like anything I'd heard before. That's mm. the other reason I liked it. It has a very, like new at that time it was like wow this sounds like this band to me like uh, you yeah. know even though i hadn't nobody had heard of the band before mm. to your recollection how long was the mixing process i don't remember exactly and my guess is that it was uh two weeks that's about we do about two to three weeks for a record you do like a song like i said a song a day so mm. Mm. like a 12 song record takes about two weeks and then you have an extra day or two with the B side, you've probably got 17 tracks in total. On this one, yeah. So it could have been closer to three weeks, probably. Back then with cassettes and with vinyl, but not so much in this case, but CDs, there's, a, there's obviously a limit on how much capacity there is on a single side of a CD or a vinyl. Uh, yeah. Same with how the tapes worked back then. But can you remember uh, there being any constraint on the time for the album? Well, CD was 74 minutes at the time. Mm -hmm. So that was a constraint, which was much, uh, much easier than the vinyl constraint. I mean, now, now with the resurgence of vinyl, it's like a real, 
a real head scratcher sometimes because you want to get everything on, but the more you cram on, the worse the audio is. The way they cut it, it's like having if you if you give it a little bit more space and you keep it down under twenty minutes aside, you'll you have a much better thing. But not everybody wants to do a four side vinyl, so it's like. Um, but yeah, at the time it was more. Yeah, CDs were. I mean, yeah, it was seventy four minutes. So that was most albums. You know, didn't really need to be more than. I mean, I remember when CDs first came out and they were having, um, you know, like bonus things and this is and that's and adding. So I remember listening, like I got so used to a 45 minute album that uh, hearing a 55 minute album or a 60 minute album, I'd just be like, man, I'm tired of this band. I I only want to listen to 45 minutes worth of this this music. Maybe the instrumentals got shortened to give them space on the album without having to cut any of them. I think that's part of it, but I do I do think there is another part of it that was like let's not linger, like this is a this is a, supposed to be a pop album. Let's not linger too long. Let's let's start it and end it. But if you're gonna do anything in the middle, let's not not uh, not stay there too long. Let's yeah, yeah. let's move on. Move back to the to the hit. Get to the hit. <laughs> so funny. Such a funny time. In the- Funny time to remember that. I have. It's been a long time since I had anybody uh, in the studio talking like that. But back at Bob's, there was a lot of talk about, like you know, get to the get, you know, get to the hook, be quick, get your audience, you know, get to the song, do this. It was always this like, like now everyone's like, yeah, let's just do what we want and see if anybody likes it. You know, who would have been in the control room with you? Well, just the band and David Foster and and me and and Bob Clermont. So nice yeah it had you know had a big couch along the back and um and david would be sitting up with bob and me and the band would be in the back and just kind of listening and watching it was really fun because it was like i like uh, particularly like david foster seeing and i think it was fun just seeing like david foster having his very very like um i don't want to say pop approach but he he thought of things in that way and jim kind of had a little bit of both um it was just fun to see how those things got worked out. And I remember David would always uh, push for things to be, he'd have, he'd like to have these kind of dramatic moves. Like he'd ask Bob to push something or make something louder, but he, he, he liked it when it just got like a little bit more obvious than something subtle. And I, that was always something I really um, liked because you always think of mixing like this sort of, like you're supposed to be really subtle and, tasteful and you know like this like super everything's like supposed to be balanced and beautiful and 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 then uh for david to push bob to do some rides that were like would jump out of this like think the thing would jump out and draw attention to itself mm-hmm. i was like wow that's a really great lesson to learn like like just, just to make something obvious is is also like kind of cool uh and not in a way that draws it not like doesn't make you think of the mixer like i was saying i don't like that but to have something um attention grabbing um in an arrangement sense was was pretty always I, that was a big thing i learned from from watching david and and, uh, and bob work together it was a really fun i remember it being a, a really fun time and a really fun project and i remember like i was saying everybody was so uh lovely um and because it was their first album they were very they were excited and it was my an early gig for me so i was very excited so it was like my memories of it are all very fond and very positive and, and uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that 25 years later, people still want to 
hear about it and think about it and talk about it. Thank you so much for spending some time today. Um, it's been really great. It's been really great to uh, catch up about a project that you worked on so long ago now. Um, 25 years is a long time to try and carve stuff out of the memory of, but um, I think it's been lovely to see it from a mixing level, um, some great insights with, with how Jim and, and David and Bob worked in, in the studio and how you worked alongside them. It's been lovely, really, um, really interesting to hear back. Um, thank you for coming on. Um, all the best for your future endeavors. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a, a pleasure to talk about it and to remember uh, that time and to remember the band and the album. And I'm happy to uh, have been a part of it and to hear that people are still uh, interested in, in hearing about it. They very much are so. There's a huge, huge swathe of fans that's very much take this album to heart and, and love it dearly. So it's um, great to talk about it further and, and encourage that, um, that fandom and that passion for this album, even if it's 25 years old now, it's something to be celebrated, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Music should always be celebrated, especially when it uh, makes people happy and, uh, and improves their lives. It's a great sentiment to end on. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you, Simon. And so ends the second interview for the season. A huge thanks again goes out to Ryan for his trust in allowing me to take of his time and speak to him about his work. It was incredible to hear the insights of how the band worked at a mixing level with Ryan and Bob Clearmountain in the studio. His enthusiasm for the album and his work on it clearly came across. And speaking with him, he was really enthusiastic about this project, especially his sentiments regarding how music should be shared, especially if it brings joy. And it is my hope that this podcast will in part do that for the fans. Thank you for listening. We have a very special guest being interviewed for the next episode. Keep your ears open and I'll no doubt be posting clips and snippets and teasers on social media. Please consider leaving a review and rating wherever you listen to the show, specifically Apple Podcasts if possible. That allows the algorithms to reach out to others. And until next show, you've been listening to Causecast and thanks.